You're listening to episode 40 of the National Centre for Writing podcast. Every week we talk about the writing life and discover exciting new projects. It's April 17th, 2019 here at Dragon Hall in Norwich. I'm Simon Jones and I'm joined by my esteemed colleague, Steph McKenna. Hello. Hi, Steph. Hello. So we had another lovely Dragon Hall salon last night. Thanks to everyone for coming. Uh, Just to mention that we don't have one next month because the Norfolk and Norwich Festival is on, but we'll be back in June with something quite special. Uh, so today is the 40th episode. It is. Big yes. congratulations. I know, 40 episodes and now you're here as well. I am. Just celebrate and make I've it even in. more exciting. Yeah. Uh, thank you to everyone that's been listening to the show so far. Uh, if you like it, please do leave a review over on iTunes and elsewhere. Um, so the other thing that we're celebrating a 40th anniversary of this month is Granta magazine. Yeah, Granta. Um, we've put up a load of really great content. From then we have a podcast interview with Ros Porter, the deputy editor. They have given us some brilliant insight into a reading list of different literary magazines, including themselves, of course, uh, tips for how to submit to literary magazines. Oh, brilliant. Um, and we are also putting up extracts from various articles from their archives. So do check out the blog mm, for that kind really, of stuff. A really, really great read. Yes, especially How to Write About Africa by Binyavanga Wenena is really, really good and worth and reading. very funny. Yes, I'm not going to say anything more about it because you just have to read it. Um, so this is all leading up to the NNF event which comes up in May. Yes, we've got, it's actually the final event, it's the closing event at Norfolk and Norwich Festival for us this year as part of the, we uh, co-programme and uh, work with Norfolk and Norwich Festival in the City of Literature strand of the festival. Um, So we begin on the 11th of May uh, and then we have uh, the big City of Literature weekend which is lots of events in Chapelfield Gardens and at Dragon Hall uh, from the 24th to the 26th of May. And the final event on the Sunday at 3pm at Dragon Hall um, is this event with Granta magazine. It's called The Path to Publication, 40 Years of Granta. Um, and it's an event that will be taking place with uh, Sigrid Rousing and who's the current Granta editor, and Ian Jack, who's a Guardian journalist. And they are going to be talking about uh, the history of Granta magazine, um, it's kind of 40 years, and also um, looking at the practical skills and sort of insider knowledge needed to succeed in your journey to publication. So it's a celebration of the magazine, and it's a really useful, practical discussion of, you know, how to submit to magazines, as you were saying, um, how, you know, how to get their attention, how to get featured, Um, and those sorts of things so it's a really great I think it's going to be a really good event for readers and people who really enjoy reading Granta magazine but also useful for anyone who's kind of seeking publication particularly in literary magazines for the first time. Yeah and if you're not familiar with Granta do go and have a listen to our interview with Ros Porter because she gave a really brilliant intro and little bit of history to the magazine mm-hmm. and uh, yeah then come along to the NNF event because it's going to be fantastic. Also I should probably mention that if you join one of our creative writing online courses you do get a uh, limited subscription to Granta oh, for a yes, few weeks, 12 week subscription so you can get a really good sampling of excellent what they perk. do while you study on one of our courses which is very exciting. Um, so today we have a conversation between Elif Shafak, Patience Agbabi, Charlotte Higgins and Evie Wilde, which took place at the Free Word Centre a few weeks ago. And I believe you were there. I was, yes. I was lucky enough to be in attendance. Um, so this was an event that uh, was kind of the second event after our big international literature showcase launch at London Book Fair, which I imagine was more of a kind of industry-focused event. And this event at the Free Word Centre 
was, I'd say was a little bit more reader focused. So um, the writers and Elif were talking um, about, uh, they were talking about their own work um, and their own ways of writing and um, the things that they enjoy in reading as well, actually. Um, and they were particularly talking about uh, women writers and women readers and what it's like to, to kind of live and write in the current landscape in the current world and uh, Elif was sort of leading that discussion it was really really it was really interesting it was a very positive discussion a uh, very supportive discussion it was it's quite intimate as well it's quite a small space at the free word it's not as definitely wasn't as big as I imagine London Book Fair was um, at Olympia so I think it had a really it was a really nice really nice discussion for anyone who's read their books before or is sort of interested in some of the big general themes that yeah. they I think what's really up. nice about what Elif's done with the showcase this time around is she's so aware of our turbulent times is, and yeah. liquid times as mm. she calls it I think but she does always come at it from this position of optimism yeah. and what can we do about it yeah. and what can writing do about it mm. uh, and like you say the the LBF event uh, was very industry focused because mm. that's what London Book Fair is mm. but what you really saw in the audience there despite it being this industry thing where everyone's been wandering around for eight hours and they've Buying all got sore books, feet selling and, books, yeah, yeah exactly it's all business 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 but despite that the audience who was there was so passionate and excited mm. you know at the end of quite a long LBF day mm. and I think that's something that Elif just seems to conjure up yeah with anyone I think that so in, in her orbit anyone in excited. her presence I think just yeah. feels very excited and that was absolutely the feeling I got from this event at Free Word as well um, it was that uh, Elif was sort of asking questions you know about some of the difficulties that these female writers might have had in kind of writing and publishing which they were very open about but sometimes she'd ask you know have you had difficulty with this and they'd say actually no I've had a great time it's been really supportive been really positive um, so it yeah it was a really optimistic look I think at what can is you know quite a turbulent time as you say at the moment. Yeah and that was like you say part of the International Literature Showcase in which Elif has selected 10 phenomenal women writers who are working in the UK today. You can find out more about that at the National Centre for Writing website over at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk forward slash ILS and the ILS is of course a partnership project between us and British Council. So let's hand it over to Elif to introduce the amazing writers she was talking to. For me, to be asked uh, to do this together with the National Centre for Writing and the English Pan and the British Council was a big, big privilege. I'm very excited to be with you, with Charlotte Higgins, with patients like Barbie and Evie Wilde. They're very different in their styles, the subjects they deal with. And in so many ways, I think their work speaks to our mind, speaks to our heart, and challenges so many, so many boundaries. And I want to start with a very general question that I raised uh, in our first event at the London Book Fair when we first got together, and that was about identity. So if you don't mind, Patience, I, I want to start with you. How central is it for us, for you, identity? You are a poet, you're a performer. When I look at your work, one of the things that stays with me so vividly is the power of you know, your faith, if I may put it this way, in words, whether it's written word or spoken word, the way you weave together performance and literature and the art of storytelling. I grew up with a grandmother who maybe opened for me the world of oral culture, oral stories, 
And to me, it's always a question, this gap between written culture and oral culture. And when I look at your work, I see a bridge there. But how important is it to, to, to be introduced as, you know, um, with, a, with an identity? Or do you just want to be called a storyteller, a speaker, a poet, and nothing else? Or is it important to be a woman, to be this, to be that? Are identities important for us? I think I think I want to inhabit them all. To be honest, I want to yeah. be greedy and you know take them all on. I like I like the, I like the storyteller one quite yeah, a lot actually. People too. haven't really used that a lot, and I my poetry is often quite narrative. I'm really interested in character. I mean, my my last work, Telling Tales, was very much you know taking Chaucer's Canterbury Tales and kind of retelling them in a much slimmer volume, um, and um, and playing around with the characters too, and inhabiting lots of different voices. I. I see my work as being quite protean, um, and a massive thing for me, actually, in the last book was to take on a male voice as well, sometimes, because mm -hmm. I think previously I'd always mm -hmm. sort of stuck to women's voices, and I still very much, very strongly feel that women need to have a voice and need to be out there, often so much silenced or invisibilised. Mm -hmm. So um, what can I say? Another thing that I think really informs my work is... Um, I, I very much see myself as a, a, a black British writer or my Nigerian heritage comes in, yeah. but also very English heritage because yeah. I was raised in two cultures. Yeah. I was raised with a white English foster family and it was actually my white English foster mother who read to me when I was a very small child. So it's interesting because <laughs> to, to get the sort of oral culture almost through that, yeah. that, through that source. So I'm a bit of a magpie. I, I see myself kind of coming from many cultures. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. And maybe that's another connection because... Uh, like Patience, you are also a person of several cultures. Mm. And I think in your work, correct me if I'm wrong, there's this interest in outsiders or people who are maybe just along the periphery. Uh, one of the things that stays very vividly with me when I read your work is this interest in place. Mm -hmm. It's not a passive landscape or a decor in the background, but places have a character of their own. They mm. shape us. They shape who we are. And maybe the stories that we... Um, transfer from one generation to the next. So again, questions about belonging, non-belonging, connection, disconnection, I find them very vividly in mm -hmm. your work. But because of that, is it important not to be identified in any way with any identity, or, or do you feel the same way about having multiple identities or multiple belongings? Um, I think... Well, I think the first thing to say is that if I'd known um, before I wrote my first book how much my own identity was sort of to come into my career, mm -hmm. I probably wouldn't have written the book, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, which is a, a bit weedy, and I'm glad I did. Um, but it's sort of... I think I write... I, I started writing in order to try and work out what I felt about stuff, because mm. um, I don't trust my own brain very much. Um, I, I trust uh, something that's written down and it, that you can look at and kind of study and work out if it's true. Um, mm. Much more than I um, trust, you know, whatever I say, you know, <laughs> for example, today. I guess <laughs> because there's also that, there's also that kind of... Um, that moment where you're just like, I have to speak and I have to say something, and I think really useful things come out of that um, mm -hmm. uh, because I'm the sort of person who wouldn't normally ever speak, especially not in front of a group of people, um, an, an audience. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's also this thing of 
being from two places, meaning that um, you know, my, I grew up with my mother being very homesick for Australia um, and a very, very British father. So there was always this like um, sort of which side are you going to take? And we ended up in the UK because my father is so British, he couldn't really cope with Australia. He can't, can't cope with heat and insects and all of that. Um, so it felt to me like um, I wasn't properly English and then also definitely not properly Australian. Um, mm -hmm. And it was really a way of, of connecting with Australia when I started writing, I think. Is it, is it a very personal question if I ask how you raise your child? I mean, do you want... Well, he's part Polish as well, yeah. so... Um, but his... It's interesting that his grandparents um, sort of ignore the Polishness. So we gave him a Polish middle name. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it's really important that he knows that um, he's come from somewhere mm -hmm. and, and he's come from a lot of different places. Um, but, you know, the, as, as far as I know, my, um, my mother-in-law has kind of like kept zipped about mm -hmm. her um, childhood. So it's, for me, it's, it's like the most fascinating thing. And for her, it's something to never talk about. Yeah. Charlotte Higgins, I, I never had the chance to tell you this, but I moved to London. I've been commuting between Istanbul and London. And your work, following your, your words, it, it was very important to me. And I know in this country, the word intellectual doesn't have a good connotation, unlike other countries. I've never understood that. <laughs> but to me, it's so important you know, to see women devoting their lives to words, knowledge, books, research, and also interdisciplinary work, weaving different disciplines from history to philosophy, from poetry to drama. And I see that in your work. And the fact that you do that not only through books, not only through journalism, but also through new digital technologies, blogging. Well, that is fascinating, you know, how you weave all that. And that's why I'm going to ask you the same question. Are you comfortable with one identity, singular identity, or is it important for you to, to, to go beyond that? I think in the, in the terms that you've asked the question, yeah, it's, it's, it's absolutely crucial to me, I feel, somehow to have this dual identity as somebody who... Um, I work at The Guardian. I'm the chief cultural writer of The Guardian. I, I sit in a room, to my right sits Gary Young, opposite sits me, Polly Toynbee, Aditya Chakraborty. I'm surrounded by these extraordinary people who think about politics, economics, American politics, race, gun crime, I mean, knife crime, you know. It, the whole sort of world as it is every day is, or today, it, it surrounds me. In the sense, and, and the excitement of working in a newsroom I mean, I, I no longer write news articles. Actually, I write, I write, the, I write long form, so I'm, I'm as near an author in the newspaper as you can be without kind of falling off the edge, really, because I, I write 5,000-word articles and take a very long time to do it. But being around that energy, which is about today, about now, about the blank sheet, about how best can this group of people come together to reflect the world that we exist in today, is a huge energy. Yeah. Um, but I also seem somehow to require to be away from it <laughs> at times and to go into this other world um, where I can think about things that aren't just about today. Um, and my books <coughs> tend to have 
tend to, in some sense or another, to be about the ancient world or the classical world or have some kind of historical, you know, to be about the deep past in, some, in one way or another or to be, be retelling old stories um, and hopefully making them new for today. And having those two things, the, the, the present, the now, and, the, and this extraordinary kind of enormous universe of ideas, stories from another time, but that speaks absolutely to our time, mm -hmm. um, and a place that I can write much more freely and much more formally, inventively. And um, I think I'm very, very lucky to be able to have both those things. And, and I, I completely, you know, I um, rejoice in this dual identity of journalist and author, which can mm -hmm. sometimes be quite conflictual Absolutely. because being a journalist can make you less seriously taken as an author because somehow journalists are regarded yeah. as skimming lightly over the top of yeah. events rather than you know, having the patience and craft to um, be able to sit down for a long period mm -hmm, mm -hmm. silently and produce a work yeah. of art. But I, I aim at least to do, try and do both. Yeah, in a very unusual way, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you emphasised several times just our times and, and it's true that these are very turbulent times, very uncertain times. And this is a question that I ask myself, not that I have found the answer, but I, I'm, I'm very curious about your answers. Is it, is it important for writers, storytellers, for poets, fiction writers, journalists, to, to speak up in the public space, to become, in a way, more politicized? Or do we have, sometimes it feels to me like we don't have the luxury of being non-political about core issues. Um, not in a partisan way, not in a party politics way, but about the loss, the dangers facing uh, core issues. Do you feel the same way, or do you think, do you feel a change also in the in this country as well? When when I brought Telling Tales out in in 2014, yeah. one of the very first questions I was asked at an even pre-launch was, yeah. well, you know, Chaucer's Chaucer set out to critique yeah. 14th century Britain. Did you set out to critique it? Yeah. And I said no, actually. Yeah. I didn't. I set out to kind of play with poetics, play with character, you know, look at... Yes, certain issues came up because my feminism came through. I redressed the gender balance quite a lot, so the politics were covert, but I didn't really have this big agenda. And then a year later, I was approached to be, be part of a, an amazing project called The Refugee Tales, mm -hmm. which walks in solidarity with refugees, asylum seekers and those who support them. And the reason I was asked to do that was because I'd of course, taken on Chaucer, because it kind of mimics mm -hmm. the, the, the walk, you know, from Canterbury to London yeah. and so on. So, and it, it was actually, it sort of gave me almost like a chance to think, actually, yes, I do, I do want to be more political. My early work was very overtly political, and then I, I think I became more covertly political. And suddenly, with well, all well, the refugees... What do you mean by that? Do you, do you mind if I ask you? You mean in terms of style to become yeah. more covertly? Yeah, yeah. yeah I mm -hmm. think so. I think mm -hmm. so. And I think there was... I think in my early work, there was a slight danger that it was almost too too overtly political yeah. and I wasn't as into the craft then yeah. and it was more out there yeah. and performance in and I think I sort of harnessed that mm -hmm. the politics back a bit mm -hmm. and worked on my craft mm -hmm. and then so it was sort of more covert but then mm -hmm. the politics started to come and come out again so now hopefully there's the craft and the, the politics mm -hmm. and I think that one of the things about the project we we um, each a writer or poet a novelist or poet um, we had to interview an asylum seeker and then we had to 
kind of re rewrite, reimagine, recast the story with their consent, and then we we ourselves actually read or perform the story. Um, now the project's developed to such an extent that a lot of the asylum seekers are telling their own story, so they're actually getting up on stage and telling their story, which is amazing. Which is amazing. But some of the earlier ones, they were like, no, we don't want to do this, we want you to do it. So that was the, the whole setup. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I think, of course, you can't... There's, there's too much going on to, to ignore, yeah. I feel, as a writer. However, I don't feel that writers have to take on those issues at all. I think that writers should just write what they have to write. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, I totally mm -hmm. believe that. And where I'm at now, mm -hmm. I am taking on issues, but I don't feel that a writer should, should have any, anyone sort of saying what they ought to write or not write. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Evie, how do you feel? Um, yeah, very much the same as Patience. I think um, I feel like if I was to sort of go, right, this is going to be my political novel, it would be sort of dog crap. <laughs> um, because if I, I, if I don't follow the way that I work, I don't write well. Um, but you can't help but be political because we're women and because of the um, atmosphere that we're existing in. That will creep into what you write. Um, but I do find that um, whenever I have... I don't know, I hate the word tackle. I hate, I hate it when there's this, like, oh, grappling with ideas um, narrative about fiction because it, it implies that you're there trying to work out how to teach people, you know. And I, I, find, I kind of shy away from that idea that a writer can teach somebody about... I mean, I, I know that I learn from every book I... I read, but it's not because the writer is there going, um, you know, I don't know if you knew, but racism is bad, and so is homophobia. You know, it's kind of, it's, it's in showing a mirror, yeah. I guess, and just showing some realistic people um, tootling around and coming up against things. And, um, and that, to me, is, is more interesting than, um, for the way that I write, than trying to say something big, um, or like a big apology um, novel. Charlotte? Yeah, very, very much the same. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I increasingly feel that sitting down at our desks and writing what we want to write as women, or indeed as individuals, is an act of resistance in itself. Mm -hmm. I mean, it feels like politics is kind of subsuming us, whether we like it or not, and, yeah. and that, of course... There's no such thing as, a, as an apolitical work piece of writing. I mean, that, that doesn't exist. I mean, it, everything exists in the world of politics in some way or another. I have to say, I think even my, journalist, even my journalism work doesn't necessarily um, set out to tackle Brexit head-on. You know, the last long piece I wrote for The Guardian was about Stonehenge and whether to build a tunnel alongside it and under it. In some ways, that was entirely about Stonehenge, uh, about Brexit. It was definitely about Stonehenge. And it, was probably, <laughs> it was probably a bit about Brexit, but it never really mentioned Brexit. Uh, you know, it was, it, was, it, was, it was about, it was a kind of metonym for the way the British deal with an intractable problem um, and a kind of, and, 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 a, and, and I, you know, and around this extraordinary timeless, well, it's not timeless, I mean, it, it existed in time, but this kind of mysterious monument of great age. So 
there were all sorts of ingredients. It didn't really need to spell out the, um, the, the parallels there, and I think it was more powerful for, for not doing that. And in my, um, as it were, non-fiction work that's yeah. outside of journalism, um, it could be said to be incredibly indirect because I'm writing about Ovid <laughs> and um, the ancient Greeks. Um, but, of course, like patients also rewriting old stories sometimes, it's all about how, you know, th those old stories <coughs> only really exist when we reactivate them with our own reading or our own rewriting or our own confrontation or encounter with them. And so, of course, I bring everything about myself to them, and some of that, a lot of that, is political. Mm -hmm. But yes, for, for me, uh, it, it just wouldn't work um, yeah. um, to, to deal with something absolutely head-on. Yeah, to try to teach, not, not in yeah. that sense, but yeah, yeah, maybe asking political I questions. I mean, for some people, of course, the great, yeah. the great novel yeah. about refugees or yeah. what's going on inside Theresa May's head. I'm sure you know, a great play about what's happening yeah. inside Theresa May's head will be written in 20 years, but I'm not sure that's yeah. for now or, in, or ever for me, probably. But would you agree? I mean, it's, of course, difficult to uh, maybe ask political questions rather than to try to give the answers. And I, and I, I hear that distinction. I, I, I understand that. But at the same time, maybe it's also even more difficult to question sexual taboos. And I know you do that a lot in your work, both in your performance, <coughs> in, your, in your interviews, in your poetry, uh, gender bending, uh, questioning boundaries. How, how crucial is that? And, and is it difficult for women writers and poets, you think, perhaps even more difficult to question sexual taboos? I actually think my work's really tame in yeah. that. Yeah, I think compared so. to yeah, I think compared to compared to some of the stuff that's out there now, and I think it's you know it's especially the um, kind of gender-free stuff that's going on. You know, I think my my stuff feels quite retro. I sort of I look back. I did a, a sequence in my my collection that came out in two thousand called Seven Sisters, and yeah. I kind of I had a drag queen and yeah. you know I had a prostitute and you know and at the time I think it was a bit radical, but now I. I I don't know. Yeah. I think things have kind of moved on yeah. quite a yeah. bit. Um, but did you so not did you not experience any, any difficulty as a, as a woman as a as a poet questioning gender taboos was was it easy? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I I can't remember having particularly having problems with it. I think I mean I think the circles I moved in were very liberal, so yeah. you know they were kind of egging me on and so on and. Um, yeah. And that was around the same time that I got tattoos and, yeah. you, know, you know, had a shaved head and just mm. kind of was kind of out there. So people did shout at me in the street. It wasn't so much my work. It was more yes. how I looked <laughs> that yes. people had issue with. Um, it's, it's fascinating how you call it tame. I mean, when I think of yeah. Invisible Ink, you know, your work, particularly mm. at around that time, mm. I find it quite... Uh, very progressive, very radical for that time, you know, and, and, and not everyone was ready to hear, 
to hear that voice. That's, that's really interesting. So I find it really progressive, yeah. yeah. I, have, I have been invited to Nigeria a number yeah. of times, and then yeah. often, often the Im Im invitation has been Renee's because <laughs> they've then sort of read the work and actually yeah, realised that. <laughs> so, you know, it, it suddenly yeah. hits you, though, that it's yeah. very easy for me to be sort of radical here. Yeah not even thinking I'm being radical and then you suddenly you know you're up against another culture and you're very aware yeah. and you know I, I mean my, my, my dad has kind of read my book my dad is incredibly liberal mm -hmm. um, but he's sort of read my books so I don't think he's really read them I think he's just sort of proud of my daughter's published and doesn't really read them I think if he did read them he'd be yeah. completely freaked out yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'm also raising this question because coming from you know where I'm coming from the Middle East it's it's harder for women writers and poets, and maybe it gets slightly easier as you age. So we want to age as fast as we can, <laughs> you know, where I come from. So I was curious about your personal experience, and in your work, uh, even when you describe violence, nature, you know, there's other side that we're not maybe seeing, that how you show us the invisible within the visible, or vice versa, mm -hmm. beauty and violence. I, I'm very intrigued by that dialectics that I find in your work. But did you experience any difficulty? Um, I think with my first book, I was, I was writing in a male voice, yeah. and I, I did that very naturally without thinking I was doing an unusual thing. Yeah. And then when it came out, it was suddenly like, you did a very unusual thing, um, which kind of... I think that is kind of a point at which I sort of started realising that there were kind of differences between male and female authors in that, you know, nobody would question Martin Amos writing a female character who goes outside and feels the weight of her breasts in her bra. But, um, you know, but there's a kind of... Um, there was this, this line of questioning, you know, how can you, a young female writer possibly get inside the head of, you know, this crystal man brain. And, and it, I found that so strange because I think it was like, it was, it was the first time it was really kind of put in such stark terms that yeah. there is a difference between serious man writing and then female writing in the kind of... Um, and then, and, but once I knew that, then it just became very funny because then you get like you know, one-star Amazon reviews of people being livid that you dared to write as a man or, mm. you know, it, it's really strange. Mm -hmm. um, and, and again, that was now quite a long time ago and I can't imagine mm -hmm. quite the same response now. Um, but it, 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 I suppose that's the, you know, and then when, when um, I did an interview when I was pregnant and I was always very kind of like, don't mention you're pregnant because it's got no bearing on, you know, a man wouldn't mention that mm -hmm. his wife was pregnant, so would it, but it, it did come up in the conversation um, and, and the interviewer, you know, left it in, which is completely fine. And then just immediately these comments and that, like, oh, stop whining ducks, you know, kind of, and you realise that just by mentioning your femaleness, and, and the body you exist in, that there are certain things that will rub people up the wrong way. Mm -hmm. So that was interesting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but quite helpful, in a way, to, mm -hmm. for these things to sort of show their claws, sure. there, I think. Sure. And was it helpful that you started publishing at a young, quite young age, actually? Or I guess was it, so. Yeah. It got me out of PC world, so that yeah. was good. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. 
I just, I don't know, I don't know what I would have done otherwise. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd be temping somewhere. So, um, and you know, the same problems exist whether you're temping or, or writing novels. Um, so yeah, I'm. It's funny to have a, a, a some kind of voice that you can, you know, make these proclamations with. Um, but and I don't. I I wasn't expecting to have that. Um, but it, it was really interesting to be able to sort of meditate on that in, in writing the books. Books take me quite a long time to write, sort of three to four to five years. And, um, mm -hmm. and it is a chance for me to just sort of look at stuff closely, mm -hmm. I suppose. Mm -hmm. Well, obviously, as you were Sexual speaking... Sexual taboos as well. Yeah. yeah. Well, the great thing about writing with the classics in mind, with Greek and Roman poets, and they've kind of been there and done that. And there's... <laughs> the, <laughs> I'm sure one of the reasons why I became obsessed by uh, Latin and Greek poetry when I was young was that all the sexy bits were in the in the Latin class. So there was E.M. Forster in English, <laughs> love E.M. Forster, but all these really incredibly filthy poems in Latin, <laughs> um, which is a great um, pushed one on to uh, improve one's translation skills. They weren't necessarily on the syllabus; you had to flick through and yeah. find all these filthy Catullus poems. Um, but dealing with that kind of material, as I do in my last book, Red Thread, which is about the idea of the labyrinth, and it's, mm -hmm. it, it starts with the, the myth of the labyrinth in Crete, and it, there's lots of Virgil and Ovid and Catullus winding its way through that book. Um, and of course, the, the maleness of the voices of the ancient world is incredibly overpowering. I mean, there are women writing and they're very few and you know thank god for Sappho you know yeah, who, 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 who is this sort of wonderful who turns male voices on their heads you know she takes Homer and reverses it to, um, and does her own thing with it in this wonderful way but there's very little of her and there's only one complete poem so you're dealing with these incredible but beautiful tiny fragments for the most part it's incredibly male voiced now male-voiced in, in an extraordinary, flexible and um, exciting way. I mean, it's men who create characters like Medea and Clytemnestra and Helen of Troy. And, um, but a little like Patience, one wants to roll up one's sleeves with those characters from time to time and um, perhaps do a bit of reversing of certain patriarchal, misogynistic myth-making. Um, and that's, in a sense, that's, that's very fertile and exciting. Um, I, I, I realised the other day that um, as I was reading a Homeric hymn, as you do, um, <laughs> because I'm in the process of rewriting some myths, thinking about Greek myths, um, I realised all these wonderful, beautiful descriptions of the female body. You know, women are always lustrous-haired and clear-skinned and they're wearing wonderful... There's something about that era in poetry. Everything's always glittering and gleaming. It's the poetry of praise. Mm -hmm. But it's really hard to reverse that into, um, into the male body, into the female mm -hmm. gaze or a kind of queer gaze. It's actually quite hard. Once you start talking about the gleaming limbs and the lustrous hair of <laughs> <laughs> the male characters, which makes you realise how 
how um, acculturated we are to that male voice and how persistent it is. And how, you know, I, I, I kind of do feel a sort of political responsibility, actually, yeah. to mess around with that and to disrupt and problematise that. Um, mm -hmm. Particularly when, actually, in certain corners of the far right at the moment, classics is being is being manipulated and used as, um, by white supremacists. It's actually really important for yeah. um, um, non-white people, women, and you know non-heterosexual people to, yeah. to 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 assert their claims over yeah. over that kind of world of literature. So. It's also a bit of a class issue here, isn't it? You know, as if well, it shouldn't be. But I know yeah. you're challenging that. You you yeah. want to make it yeah, much more egalitarian, accessible. But but yeah, the perception, the Boris perception. Johnson. Yeah, yeah, that's not yeah. Give Boris Johnson a monopoly over quoting Latin. Yeah, I mean that yeah. really that that really annoys me. Yeah. you know when people um, quite rightly um, say he's absurd and ridiculous for talking about the Carthaginian Wars in relation to the latest twist and turn in the current political debate. I mean, I hate it too, but I, I just, but it, it, it sort of shouldn't be, it should be, it shouldn't be elitist. We should all be able to talk about the Punic Wars in relation to the current political debate, even though I have to say, I didn't think there was, it was a completely false analogy, but there we go. <laughs> <laughs> but what you said is so interesting to me. I also think about, you know, we have this Ottoman literature which is thought to be very backward, very pre-modern, those are the perceptions. But when you look, take a closer look at it, there's a celebration of sexuality um, and, and eroticism that we have suppressed, actually, throughout the, the Middle East. So sometimes in modern literature, contemporary lit literature, it might be harder to find that kind of celebration of the, of the human body and desire and pleasure and eroticism. So I, I find those contrasts very interesting. But something you said, I think, ties very much into um, your work as well, the gaze. You know, who tells us the story? Who has the right to convey the story? And one of your work, uh, poems, is, is to me very interesting to see how it speaks to visual art. You know, when you take a painting and, 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 and look at who's, who's telling us the story uh, and, and, and the gaze of the characters on, on, on the sides, you know, what are the stories that haven't been told, the silences? I think as writers, I don't know if you'd agree, we're of course very much interested in stories, but we're also very interested in silences. So um, is it important for you to, the gaze, whose gaze are we following when we look at ourselves, to each other, to society, to female body, and is it important to subvert that gaze? Yes, very, very much so. Um, um, I'm think it's it's weird in my head. I'm thinking, can I mention the novel? Can I mention the novel? Am I allowed to mention the novel? I won't go into too much detail. Okay, I've just written a novel, and um, <laughs> right, I've just written a novel. Hey, and the publishers in the audience. And the in the audience. I'm allowed to, but I won't go. In, I won't say very much about it except to say that um, one of the things I wanted to do was actually have a, a, a young. So she's 11, stroke 12, a very young black woman's voice, and sort of inhabit yeah. that voice and, and take that on but she has a very unusual perspective. Um, so um, I'm very aware, actually, of, of when... There's a, there's a massive difference, I think, between um, poetry and prose in terms of um, when, I've, when I've written poems, I've had that sense that quite often the poems are going to be 
read out loud, not all of them, but some of them, and especially yes. something like the Canterbury Tales where mm -hmm. the, the, vo the voices are there. Um, so you become maybe more, I don't know, more, more aware of, of, of writing, of, of, of your voice maybe being different from the voice that you're creating. And in, in, that, in creating that work, I was very aware of writing voices that I couldn't even voice myself, so I wasn't even going to perform them, and yet they would somehow be performed. Whereas I think when you're writing prose, it's more, more of an internal voice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know whether, no, maybe you can yeah, help yeah. me out here a little bit, because mm. we, were, we were talking behind the scenes a bit about, um, about how, almost how when you're writing prose, you're hearing voices, but they're not kind of coming out, you're not interacting mm. with people, it's more sort of hidden. Mm -hmm. Whereas um, one of the things about, that I love about um, poetry and um, and my relationship with it is, is, is the egalitarian nature where you can kind of perform and everybody can experience it. You know, even someone illiterate can just hear it and enjoy it. Yeah. Um, so maybe I've gone more into the sort of sound music thing than the visual thing. Is that, what you say, also... is that why you say you also enjoy listening to poetry in Russian or Chinese, even if you yes. don't understand? It's the yes. sound, the, you know, yeah. the rhythm. Yeah. 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 yeah, very much so. And I'm, I'm really interested yeah. in how um, the interface of, of poetry with other art forms so, you know, you mentioned the visual and the, the gaze, yeah. and the, but, but how something like film, you know, everybody can just kind of see um, it, it goes beyond language, maybe. Mm -hmm. um, where language sort of interfaces with visuals, where language interfaces mm -hmm. with sound, where you don't mm -hmm. actually have to understand the individual words, but mm -hmm. somehow it's having some kind of physiological effect Definitely. on your understanding. Definitely. You know, there's a quote from T.S. Eliot, something. I shouldn't quote T.S. Eliot, really, but I do sometimes. Do, <laughs> so I will. Sorry. In, in this company, uh, something like, it's something like good poetry communicates before it's understood, and I'm not into all poetry being really intellectual and really difficult. So he said a lot of stuff that I totally disagree with, but I like the idea of the poetry communicating on all sorts of levels, mm -hmm. and maybe on that, just on that sound level, or that visual level, mm -hmm. initially, is, is very important. I probably haven't answered your question at no, all. No, no, you have indeed. Taken it beautiful. Into... That was a beautiful answer. Uh, actually, Evie was sharing something interesting with us when you said back the scenes mm. about deafness and yeah. the sounds we hear internally as yeah. novelists, prose writers. Yeah, yeah, I'm very bad at talking to people on the phone, um, and I went to the doctor about it, assuming I was going slightly deaf or something else mad, and um, and he said that a lot of novelists um, and creative people get this kind of weird deafness where they forget how to listen to people because they've got their own inner monologue going on. And, um, which seems like the most selfish, awful thing. <laughs> what a terrible friend. But, um, but that sort of losing the ability to socialise and, um, and forgetting... You know, I think at 16, I was much more sort of socially adept than I am now because I've sort of bred it out of myself. Yeah. Um, and... Um, yeah, it's interesting that you can you yeah. can do that. I was also thinking about when you were when you were talking patients about um, imagery. My father was an art dealer, and he um, specialised in early nineteenth century watercolour, so all the sort of browns. And, um, <laughs> and I used to I found I didn't have his eye, and I couldn't sort of communicate with them in the way that he did. But I did find the little tiny bits in the background which mm. were really lightly painted, much more interesting than, you know, the two cows and the shepherd over here. The kind of little hovels in the background mm. that you'd see and maybe tiny little dots of figures. Mm. Um, 
And that would kind of keep me entertained when I was a kid, kind of thinking about those silent people in the background. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Charlotte, how do you deal with that contradiction, the introvert in us? <laughs> that writes fiction, creative work, and then this public space, the talks, and of course, in your case, there's also journalism, which requires a completely different energy. How do you deal? Um, well, I do deal with it, but not. But it's not. It's not totally straightforward because I seem to require a different character um, when I'm writing books to when I'm being a journalist. I mean, being a journalist is about active curiosity and very active listening the entire time and also knowing when to ask the right questions. Um, but mostly about active listening, I think, increasingly. Um, and yes, I've, I'm in writing mode at the moment, so that means that I'm completely inarticulate and can't really speak, uh, leave alone, I can barely dress myself. I mean, that's... <laughs> <laughs> It's a very, very strange yeah. place to be in. Yeah. I, I find that I, I, I find that I, I do need both. Although I, although I find the transition between one mode and the, the other mode um, quite difficult. Yes, yeah. exactly. It's yeah. like um, yeah. it's just a slightly get the bends and yeah. in either direction. Um, <laughs> but I'm just very lucky. I mean, I'm very lucky to be able to to be able to have those two existences. So I'm, I'm certainly not complaining. Indeed. It matters to me that first of all, the act of reading should be continuous. I think writers, poets need to be good readers all their lives. Um, and that curiosity, that childish curiosity should be alive. Uh, but also maybe not to stay in one island, you know. And I like reading nonfiction too. And I love obviously fiction, but also nonfiction from history, philosophy, political science, because it's all connected. Knowledge is always connected. And once, what, what you say to me right now, maybe it's going to affect me tomorrow. I'm going to think about that. So we learn. We learn all the time. I learn a lot from your work. I'm very pleased that we had this conversation. And I hope your works, your words will be translated into many, many languages all around the world. You know, <laughs> through the British great. Council. Yeah. <laughs> because we need this. I think in these extraordinary times, turbulent times, when we're all pushed into our tribes, categories, when there's too much hatred, too many gaps, mm -hmm. cognitive, intellectual, we need to hear each other's voices. It matters. Uh, we need more translation. So please give me a big applause for our work. Thanks for listening. If you like Charlotte and Elif in particular, then do check out episodes 35, 37 and 39 of the podcast where you'll find even more of them both. If you have questions or want to get in touch with us, you can find me on Twitter at Tarnamus and Steph. You can find me on Twitter at Steph X McKenna. Quite a long name. Yeah, excellent. And mm. if you want to send questions to the National Centre for Writing, and you absolutely should, then find us on Twitter and Instagram at Writers Centre. You can find our Facebook page. You can sign up to our newsletter over at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk and you can in fact also email us uh, info at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk. It's a very long email address. It is a very long email address. I sometimes apologise when I'm <laughs> reading it out to people, but yes, it's memorable. Yeah. Prepare your fingers before typing. Yeah. Thanks again, keep writing, and we'll catch you on the next episode when we're chatting to individual bookseller of the year nominee, Joe Hedinger, who just so happens to hail from inimitable Norwich bookshop, The Book Hive. We love The Book Hive so much. Yes. We're talking a lot about that next week. Okay, bye-bye. Thanks, bye.